Hi, welcome to Head Start, the podcast for race directors and the business of putting on races. Professional race timing is one of those things everyone's come to expect when entering a race. And for more than three decades, RFID has been the undisputed gold standard when it comes to timing races. But with new technologies coming onto the market, cheaper and more widely available alternatives to RFID timing are fast becoming a reality. Alternatives like Bluetooth, which can be programmed to deliver highly accurate race times at a fraction of the cost of RFID. Does that mean you could soon be timing your race on your own using just a pair of phones? Well, that's exactly what we'll be going into today with my guest, Atlas Live Tracking founder, Jean-Louis Lafayette. Before we go into all that, though, a quick shout out to our podcast sponsor, Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up, the leading all-in-one technology solution for endurance and fundraising events. More than 21,000 in-person, virtual and hybrid events use Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up's free and integrated solution to save time, grow their events and raise more. And we'll be talking a little bit later in the episode to Race Timer and Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up's resident race day expert, Chris McDonald, about race day scoring. Give Sign Up, Run Sign Up's next generation race timing and scoring software. Okay, let's get into this amazing episode. Hey, Jean-Louis, welcome to the podcast. Hi, panels. Thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot for doing this. So let's start with where you're currently based. Is it the UK now, France, where you're currently based? So my company is based in England in the north near Middlesbrough. I am currently based in Lyon, Lyon, France. Perfect. Your company is Atlas Live Tracking, and you started that a couple of years ago. Is that right? Yes, my company is Atlas Live Tracking. We started uh, more like three years ago. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about what Atlas Live Tracking does. Sure. So Atlas Live Tracking is really about providing the best possible experience for athletes and spectators through the application of technology. So that's our kind of, that's our mission. That's what we try to do. And we do that for who? We do that for race organizers and we do that for race timing companies. Right. So we'll give you a little bit of context in terms of a little bit of background as to Atlas, how we started and why. Uh, so essentially Atlas was born out of uh, really my love for sport and technology so I used to be a very active triathlete and trail runner, and I just couldn't understand why there was not a better technology solution for timing and tracking out there. It just seemed to me that a lot of the technology was old school, hadn't changed in a, in a long time, and there had to be a better solution. So really, uh, with my knowledge of semiconductors and radio technology, I pair, partnered up with a robotics company based in the UK. So Atlas essentially grew out of a robotics company that, as I say, I had a prior relationship with. And essentially, we're an incubatee company within that much larger group. So that means we get a lot of dedicated resources with the manufacturing. We have testing labs, which are used for high-end robotics. So you can imagine that puts us in pretty good position to develop you know, high-quality technology. So that's kind of a bit of background about Atlas. In terms of the services that you offer for races, you do live tracking, uh, I guess, as the name suggests. Uh, but also Bluetooth timing is a, is a big part of what you guys offer. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, live tracking sort of covers a multitude of different things, I suppose, right? But Atlas specifically offers three uh, distinct services for its customers. One is GPS tracking. The next one is Bluetooth timing. And the last one is what we call uh, hybrid live virtual. Which is what? Hybrid live virtual is essentially the ability to create a uh, set course somewhere using our technology, very light touch, and the athletes or the participants run, walk, cycle the course using uh, a mobile app downloaded onto their mobile phone, which interacts with uh, very soft hardware on the course, and that gives precision timing, so professional timing, but socially distanced. Right. So for a course that can be either permanent or temporary. So we've done stuff with virtual organizers in the UK. We've done stuff with permanent courses in France. So it's quite adaptable for both, really. Okay, great. So today, I wanted to basically um, pick your brain and lean on your expertise to get all of our listeners, and myself included, because I can't claim to be anything close to an expert, to learn more about Bluetooth timing specifically. 
And I'd like to start, if that's okay with you, with what Bluetooth timing is and how it differs from other forms of race timing that people may be familiar with. Sure. So Bluetooth timing. So what is it? So Bluetooth timing really is race timing done through Bluetooth technology, right? So it's most basic. That's what it is. Today, if you look at most races, so we're talking about endurance racing from running, trails, cycling, anything human powered. If you look at that today, nine out of 10 races that have timing is done with RFID technology, right? I think we can both agree with that. Bluetooth timing is an alternative to RFID timing where we use the Bluetooth protocol instead of RFID protocol to provide precision timing. But ultimately, it works in a similar way. You need a piece of hardware that is worn by the athlete or the participant, and you need something to read some uh, signals from that hardware based on the finish line or timing points, right? So it works in a overall a similar way to RFID technology, but with a very, very distinct difference. The difference being that Bluetooth timing is really based on software, whereas RFID timing is really based on hardware. So by that, it means that the piece of equipment that sits on the finish line, for example, can be just a mobile phone. Because ultimately, it's the software on the mobile phone that's doing the reading. So when the athlete wears the tag or the pod, as we call it, which is really a transponder on his wrist or on her ankle, they will run past the finish line in the same way that they would do in a normal race. And the mobile phone sitting at the finish line, equipped with the software, will read the pod on the athlete as it runs by and be able to detect who that person is and the accurate timing derived from that person. Right. And uh, just sort of for historical context here, how long has Bluetooth timing been around? So Bluetooth timing is based on Bluetooth, right? So everybody knows, or most people know what Bluetooth is. Bluetooth has been around for ages, like decades even. But Bluetooth is in constant evolution, right? And actually, for race timing purposes, we don't use Bluetooth per se, but Bluetooth low energy, which is a derivative of Bluetooth. And that has only been around for a few years. And the development as such has enabled its use case for race timing really only in the last two to three years, more or less when we started. I see. I see. So you said that basically, I mean, you mentioned that the part of the setup involves having a phone, having a tag in the same way that you have a tag with with um, with an RFID system. What exactly is the is the setup like the full hardware setup of a Bluetooth timing system? Like, what are all the components required for timing? So the athletes need to wear a transponder. Right? Mm-hmm. And as I said before, we call that a pod, right? So some people might call it something different, but really it's a beacon, right? So we could just use a generic term for the beacon. So the athletes wear a beacon, which is actually very similar in look and size and feel to an active RFID chip that you would wear for a triathlon, for example. So if anyone listening to this podcast can think that's what they look like, it goes on your wrist, it goes on your ankle. It's a small device. Ours weighs 12 grams. It's very light. It's waterproof, of course. So the athlete needs to wear that piece of equipment. Then that works with the software that I described, which is going to be either on a laptop or a specific reader or a mobile phone. So Atlas is one company, but there are others doing uh, Bluetooth timing. We only use mobile phones, for instance, whereas I know some of the other companies uh, may use a different piece of kit, but we've managed to get it on a mobile phone. So to answer your question, the athlete needs to wear the transponder or the beacon. The mobile phone needs to be set up at the finish line, start line, and anywhere in between that you want it. And then there is the software. So the software is um, used by the race organizer, the race timing company, to use that to set up the race. So it's a race management system. So is it like like uh, scoring software, essentially? Like the, the same kind of thing you'd have for an RFID setup? That's exactly right. Although it is simpler. 
But yes, that's exactly what it is. And you mentioned um, a phone at the finish line. Are we talking about one phone, two phones, multiple phones? What what exactly is the setup with with a phone, which I guess is a receiver in all this, right? Yeah, exactly. The phone is a receiver in this instance, right? So instead of the blue mats on the ground or the big antennas that you see sometimes, we just put a phone, literally a phone. Uh, we have a specific timing box that we call it, which is a waterproof box. You put the phone in, it's got a battery pack and a fan, and it keeps it cool and, and waterproof all day long. So for instance, we would just literally stick that box on the finish line. So if you've got an arch, you imagine an arch, we'd have one phone in a box on one side of the arch and one phone in another box on the other side of the arch. We always recommend to our customers that they have minimum two phones at the finish line, preferably three with one as a backup, and and the timing gates along the race course, be it trail running, cycling, whatever, you just need one phone. And normally, I've seen in cycling, for example, they put the phone on a tripod mm-hmm. because it's easier to see, uh, it's easier to manage for the volunteers, and they just put it on a tripod, stick it by the side of the road, forget about it. Right, which immediately sounds like there's some benefits to this. I mean, one of them being that, at least with the mat antennas, I know that lots of events, particularly like high-speed events, they don't like them having like mats on the ground. It's a lot easier, I guess, having a phone around. And the other thing that comes to mind is that, you know, if you're doing like a really tough trail race or a mountain race somewhere, which which I have done in the past, having those intermediate gate points, timing points, Having having the ability to have those just set up with a phone is a lot easier than having to like you know drag timing equipment up a mountain or something, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two points in your question there. I think uh, the first point being the tripod, like why a tripod, etc. And you know the, the the reason being is it's easier for the volunteer to just handle it. So when they have it on a tripod, they can see it, they can uh, they can manage it, they they know where it is, no one's going to lose it. One of the questions we get sometimes from our customers is, what happens if my phone goes missing? Is someone going to steal my phone? That seems to be a concern for people. And it's, a, it's probably a valid concern, more so in France, I would say. Being, being you know French, I can say these things. I would say to you that um, tripod, it just makes it easier. It's easier for the athlete. Everyone can see it. It kind of provides a little bit of relief for the athletes because they know that's a time point as well. So the, when they're whizzing by on a, on a bike, it kind of makes it easier to, to refer to the timing points. Uh, in their minds, um, and to you, to your, to your second point, yes, timing mats on a public road when you haven't got the permission to close the road is a non-starter. Hence, why Bluetooth timing actually has been a bit of a game changer for cycling, because it now means you don't, you can have timing, but you don't need to close a road, right? So you think about that. I mean, let me give you a, a concrete example: time trials for cycling. Right? Time trials happen up and down the UK every weekend during the season, right? So roughly 25 weeks per year, every single week, there's tons of clubs doing time trials. They cannot put RFID equipment down, or very few of them do, because they use public roads, it's too dangerous, setting that up is just, it's not a start. So when we came along with our system, people loved it because all they did was put a phone on a tripod or in that box I described by the side of the road, and that just created the finish line. And we have a, I mean, it's slightly separate, but we have a, an app with 4TT in cycling where you can actually start the athlete individually. So you do a countdown, three, two, one, go, and you just start them individually like that, which is how normal TTs are done. And the rest is done by the software. So when they whiz past the phone at the finish line, that captures their, their time. And that's how it's done. And since we've been uh, mentioning phones here, I think it's, it's good to mention that these phones are not exactly, you know, like any kind of phone, is it? Not exactly, that's right. So we, first of all, it's only on Android, not on iOS. So here we're talking about the reader, right? So the finish line and the timing points. Now, I can't talk to other companies who do Bluetooth timing, but certainly for Atlas, it's only on Android. And what we do with our customers is say that for the finish line, we prefer you to use our phones or the phones that we have already labelized as good for precision timing. For timing gates, you can pretty much use whatever phone you want. So if you or volunteers have an Android phone, um, as long as it's Android uh, 7 Plus, or I think it's 6 Plus actually, then it's fine. So it's, okay. it's, not, it's, it's not an issue. But for the finish line where we want to control the outcome, 
best you use our funds. Okay. But essentially, for all the other timing points, I just, you know, go around, see how many Android phones, are, phones I've got, and essentially I've got as many timing points, basically. That's the concept. Yeah, exactly. Oh, which is fantastic. So, and then another thing I suppose that um, we need to sort of clarify, you spoke of those uh, of those pods, the transponders, um, and these are not, because most people, I guess, would be most familiar with the disposable type. The, we're not talking about disposable transponders here. This is something that people need to issue to their participants and then collect at the finish line, I guess, and then reuse. That's correct. Yes, exactly. Right. Do you see, like, in terms of where the technology is going, is there is there any chance that we might be seeing disposable transponders with this technology anytime soon? Not anytime soon, no. Bluetooth at the moment is not equipped for that. But within the years to come, yes, we will see disposable transponders. Excellent. Let's move on to talk about a little bit about what type of event this technology is best or least suited for. And I think we mentioned a couple of examples. You spoke of cycling and um, you know the benefits Bluetooth timing as a setup has over other systems. And as I mentioned, you know, it's clear that when you're doing races in environments that really, you know, on, on courses where it's really difficult to get around the course, being able to time with just one phone, that's also very helpful. Is there any kind of race any other type of race that Bluetooth timing is particularly well-suited for or any type of race that it's not very well-suited for? Yep, I think both. So <laughs> if I could start with the well-suited and then I'll finish with the not well-suited. So for the well-suited, anything involving water, right, where passive RFID is not so good, okay, in particular UHF, Gen 2, RFID, not very good with water. Uh, you know, everybody knows that the other problem that you have there is that when the weather degrades and you have a lot of rain and people are running, what can often happen is that the RFID tag will get um, will get scrunched a little bit or uh, maybe broken, etc. So that you know that reduces their their ability to transmit. So Bluetooth timing is very good where you have mud, water, rain, or difficult conditions like very humid environments, like in Hong Kong, for example, or Malaysia. So that lends itself very well for triathlon, swim run, uh, obstacle course racing, where we've had quite a bit of success with it, trail running, of course, um, some swimming events. Now, to be clear, it doesn't transmit in water. So if someone is swimming in open water, for instance, it's not going to transmit when the pod is in the water. But as soon as it comes out of the water, so imagine the guy's got it in his, in his cap or he's got it on his wrist. As soon as it's out of the water, it transmits immediately. So, uh, and cycling, of course. So there's no limit in terms of speed. So for example, if cyclist is whizzing past at 45K an hour, 50K an hour, it's not a problem. Uh, runners going slowly, not a problem. Um, so it's really good for all of those events. Now, where it's not so good is mass participation events. So where Bluetooth is not uh, applicable is for large mass participation events. So here I'm talking about events where, you, generally speaking, you have more than three, 4,000 people where you are anticipating, say, for example, if you're a race director and you're anticipating more than uh, 20 to 25 people at once in one second on the finish line, Bluetooth timing is not for those types of events. Does that mean that I can't... So if I have, which is actually would have been my, my next question. So if I have a high-density finish rate... Can I not mitigate that by just putting more phones, like more receivers on the finish line? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Absolutely, you can. And somebody asked us to do this. And I said to them, quite frankly, there comes a point, um, in my view, where if you've got more than 4,000 athletes and you're going to have to equip each one of those athletes with an individual pod and you're going to have to line your finish line with more phones, so um, your cost goes up. At some point, that ratio between the effort and the cost and the efficacy of using disposable RFID just doesn't make sense for Bluetooth timing anymore. So here we're specifically talking about, you know, big city marathons, big city half marathons. When we conceived Bluetooth timing, and again, I can't speak to the other companies, but when we conceived Bluetooth timing, it was not with that in mind. And that's partly economic, as I just described. 
and partly as a limitation of the technology itself. But on the flip side, you can imagine that if you just take an event like Swim Run, for example, you can have five to 10 entries into water and five to 10 exits of water. Can't do that with RFID. It's just not possible. So today, how do they do it? They do it with, with, with volunteers standing there with clipboards and WhatsApp groups. So here, you, instead, you have you just set up a, a phone at the start, phone at the end, and you can uh, and you can record as many people as you want. So it, it has it has many plus points and some some uh, negative points. But overall, I think the market is big enough so that we don't need to worry too much about the fact that we won't be doing London Marathon anytime soon. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a use case. I know you've been you've been focusing on obstacle events and multi-sport because of the terrain and the difficulties and the the hardiness of of the Bluetooth transponder, but I think there's definitely a case for events on the, you know, sub 1000 sub 2000 type um start line which, you know, by the way, in in most countries, in all countries, it is the bulk of events that take place, right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, it leads it up quite nicely to the point that where this really excels actually for smaller events is the fact that um, it's far more cost-effective. So if you're a small organizer, um, let's say you've got 200 people in your race, you have a choice. You can either do the timing by yourself or you can get a timing company involved. And a timing company comes at a minimum cost, typically. I know what it is in France, UK, Hong Kong, America, etc. I mean, we all know that that cost is, you know, it, there's a minimum cost. And it doesn't really matter on the number of athletes. It's a minimum cost to call this timing company out. Where Bluetooth timing comes in is that we can completely, uh, we can halve that cost. And we could do so, but maintaining a very high level of service by effectively allowing for a DIY service. So that means the organizer would basically do the timing by themselves using their volunteers and their staff. But because Bluetooth timing is so simple and so easy, it's actually very doable for them to do. Is that something that you've had um, actual events like the, the DIY approach? Have you had events go down the DIY route and everything worked fine and you just you know instructed them remotely what to do and you sent them the phones and everything worked? Yes, uh, we have. Um, I'm caveating this with the fact that um, one of the race organizers that we did this with uh, was or, or is a professional race timer, so it's a little bit easier for them. We have our first um, event here in France coming up in June, which is completely DIY, small race, uh, 350 people, uh, trail running race. So that's going to be a real litmus test of how they deal with this because these people are not professional race organizers. They are not professional timers. So it's going to be a very interesting litmus test. But yes, the concept is there. And we, in any case, um, in any case, we would be behind a computer all day to help. So in the event that there's any mistakes or problems or questions, or and inevitably there will be, we are there behind a computer, behind a phone mm. to help out. And all of the work is done beforehand. So, I mean, if you... To, to a race organizer who's listening, it might sound a bit daunting knowing that you've got to put in a GPX file, you've got to upload all your entries, you have to set up your course, you've got to make sure you get your categories right, etc. All of that's done beforehand. With our help, without our help, doesn't matter. The system's quite simple. And then on race day, all the organizer has to do is actually make sure that the phones are switched on, the app is, is, is switched on properly. There's only one button anyway. Uh, the, the, the right phones are distributed to the right volunteers at the right point in the course, and the software does the rest. There is no button on the transponders or pods or beacons, right? So there's no button. Okay, so these beacons work all the time, a little bit like active RFID. So there's nothing for the athlete to get wrong. So that's often where, you know, sometimes the problem is if the athletes don't turn on their equipment or they wear it in the wrong way. You, you can't really do that with a Bluetooth timing because... Whether you wear it in your pocket, uh, in your sock, or even if they stuffed it in their shoe, it would still work because the signal is very strong. And there's no button to press, and it's continually uh, sending a signal. So organizers don't need to worry about that side of things. They just need to worry about the mobile phones, making sure uh, the app is working. And we can see that remotely anyway with our system. 
we can see, we can monitor the phones, their battery levels, uh, whether the app is operational or not, whether there's an issue or not. Uh, I've had that happen to me before, for example. And, and that's all they need to worry about. And that's it. And the rest is done automatically by the software, including all the results that go on the live leaderboard. If hardware is the body of your ACE timing setup, software is the brain. And right now, Give Signup, Run Signups, Race Day Scoring is the leader in timing and scoring software. So why is your choice of timing software important? Well, let's hear from Race Timer and Give Signup, Run Signups, Race Day expert, Crisp McDonald. Crisp, good to have you on. Hi, Panis. Thanks for having me. So we've been discussing Bluetooth timing hardware today. Um, what types of timing hardware does Race Day Scoring work with? Race Day Scoring is an open scoring system designed to work with all major chip timing hardware, including ChronoTrack, MyLapse, Race Results, uh, Pico, RFID, and many more. Uh, stateside, we don't have many Bluetooth timers yet. Um, I'm sure that will come in the future, but theoretically, a Bluetooth system um, should work with Race Day Scoring as long as it can create a, uh, an appendable CSV or text output that has either bib or chip number and a time of day and date stamp. We'd love to test it out with a Bluetooth timer, given the opportunity. Yeah, I think you'll be seeing a lot more uh, Bluetooth hardware coming onto the market. So open system is definitely something I want to look for in a timing software if I'm a race director or a timer. Uh, for participants, though, what is it about timing software that matters most to them? So for whatever timing solution you choose, um, the most important thing to participants is that their results are accurate and that they know their results as soon as they finish. I think that's one thing that um, over the past three or four years with more and more uh, Wi-Fi or MiFi on site, that people have come accustomed to, and that's just live push of results to the web and live text email results as well. So one of the fun features that's really easy to set up with race day scoring is a live leaderboard where participants finishing the race can immediately see their position. Um, and so it's kind of our take that uh, using technology to enhance the race experience is really what timing is all about. Yeah, that makes sense. And I also recently read that version three of race day scoring that just came out is also much smarter about scoring teams for things like relays and corporate runs. The new release of Race Day Scoring is really cool. There's been some substantial innovations for timers um, that are scoring events with the team component. The social nature of teams really does make our race day more fun and also helps drive both registration and participation. Um, however, on the back end, as a timer, it can make scoring much more complex. And Race Day Scoring 3 simplifies the setup of things from cross-country to uh, complicated team events and even allows for scoring upon all types of uh, aggregate scoring definitions or rules such as age, gender, last finisher, etc. Awesome. I know you guys are pretty proud of what you've achieved with Race Day Scoring and the amount of work that went into it. So, well done. Many thanks for coming on, Crisp. Now, let's get back to talking Bluetooth timing with Zanri Lafayette. Specifically, what does Bluetooth timing cost? Let's take the example of, let's say, let's say I'm doing like a 500-person running race, like a 510K. Um, what do the logistics look like from my point of view, step-by-step? Uh, step? And actually, if you can give us some numbers... What does the cost look like? And I'd like to, to look at what the cost looks like doing this with Bluetooth and what it may have cost me to do this with RFID. Like just looking over a concrete example, 500 people, 10K. Yeah, sure thing. So, all right, let's start with the Bluetooth. So what you would do is you would uh, go on to uh, a site of, uh, of somebody who provides a service. Atlas is obviously one example, but I'm sure there are others. And you would... Um, essentially fill out the form saying, I have a race, this is my race, estimated number of people, and you'd find out what the price is. The price in this instance would be uh, roughly 750 euros for that race you described. So that's 500 people times by one euro 50. Mm -hmm. So which would make it sort of like around the $1,000 mark for, yeah, so, for comparison for like, for like our US listeners. 
So for our US listeners, yes, that would be, uh, I don't know what the current exchange rate is, but yeah, roughly a thousand, thousand US dollars, right? So uh, just to compare that to RFID, RFID uh, in Europe certainly would be twice that price minimum. So for 500 people, you're talking uh, two euros 50 minimum uh, is your normal de minimis cost for, for time. So you would uh, register your, your details online if you're not already registered with us. We would contact you. We would uh, find out a bit more about your race. And then uh, we'd create an account for you in our system. You would up, up, upload some of the details that you want. So, for example, your description of your race, you would put uh, photos. You would put maybe a, a sponsor banner if you've got one. So if you've got any sponsors, you put them in there. So we've got an area for sponsors. So you would create that profile in our system. Then that's when we help you take over. We would help you with the GPX. We would help you put the timing points physically on the GPX map. We would then um, issue you the equipment. So the equipment would be what? So in your instance, it would be 500 beacons or 550 because we always leave a bit more spare. We would send to you, including three phones for the finish line. That's what we would send to you. You would then issue the pods to the people on the day or beforehand, as you wish. You would set up the finish line, the two, three phones. They actually, we would send them in a box, in this waterproof box I'm talking about. And you would just put that box at your finish line. Then if you want split timing points, which is no extra cost from us anyway, you would simply go into the Android app store, download the Atlas app, onto your volunteers' phones or any other phones you've got, staff, volunteers, whoever, spectators, you would authorize them with a code to become timing gates. So they download the app. The app's very simple. It can only do one thing. Uh, there's no passwords, nothing like that. So they download the app. They log in with your code. You tell them to go somewhere. So whether timing point one, two, three, halfway mark, whatever. They turn on the app. That's them set up. So when the athletes begin their race, all you need to do at this point in time is to actually make the race active. So on the Atlas system, for example, we have a system active button, which you would press. So you would enable the gates, i.e. the phones, so that they're not enabled too early. So you decide when you enable them and you decide when to start the race. And all that can be done from the mobile phone. Then the athletes will run the course. They will finish the race. And all of the timing is done automatically. So as soon as they finish, a few seconds afterwards, it gets loaded up into the cloud. It then goes down to a mobile web app or even the mobile app for spectators, for the athletes, for yourselves. So all the live results come in immediately. And all the spectators have access to all of those results, of course, on the mobile web app. Um, or indeed, they can download the Atlas app and get it that way. That's great. I mean, yeah, it's it's super streamlined. What about the intermediate timing points? Would would those upload live as well? Assuming that you know the the phones that record the intermediate timing points have a connection to the cloud. Yes, they would. So what would happen is the athlete would run past a phone. Let's say the phone is two kilometers out from the start, and it's the same mechanism as for the finish line. So as soon as he passes that phone, the as long as the guy's got a data connection, very important, needs a data connection. If not, that data is stored on the phone and he can upload it later. But as long as he's got a data connection, that uh, that athlete's information will go straight to the cloud and down to the same uh, live leaderboard. So yes, you have, as a race organizer, you have a live leaderboard throughout the race. Excellent. And I know uh, because, you know, we've discussed this in the past, you guys have been trying, and I suppose other, others may as well, to also try to pitch this technology to timers. What has the response been? Because, you know, they're the professionals, the vast majority of them time either through RFID or manually for some of the smaller races. Um, how are they viewing Bluetooth as an alternative? Yeah, so most of the race directors, uh, sorry, race timing companies that we have spoken to, first of all, I would say 80% had never heard of Bluetooth timing before I called them. That's the first thing, right? So I have to explain what it is. But they're all interested to listen, to hear about new technology. The first thing that they respond to is the multiple timing points. I would say that's the key for race timers being interested in a Bluetooth timing system is that because of the way that race timing companies charge in their business model, the way they make money, um, the multiple timing points opens up uh, quite a lot of different avenues for them. 
right? So that's been the first thing. The second thing they will ask is, what's your accuracy like? So once they understand uh, what the limitations on the mass participation thing is, they will then ask, what is your precision of timing? So that's the next question. Then the question that comes after that is actually on the software. So what is the software for a timer looks like? How complex is it? How simple is it? How user-friendly is it? So once we get over those kind of questions, and as long as they are uh, typically put at ease and that we satisfy the requirements, because the requirements are very high, you know, race timers have a very high requirement of their equipment, then, um, then actually most of them are interested. Frankly speaking, most of them are interested, but interested um, from different perspectives. So, for instance, Bluetooth timing is not there to replace the equipment that they have today. So no race timer is just going to throw out all their equipment and replace it all with Bluetooth. That, that doesn't make any sense, right? So Bluetooth timing is there to provide an alternative. It's there to provide them with the ability to get different clients on different sports that they didn't have before. So here specifically, I'm talking about guys who've got only a certain type of passive RFID. Now they can go and get triathlon. Now they can go and get swim run. Now they can go and get specific types of cycling events that they couldn't get before, like mountain biking, for instance. So it opens up a new avenue for some race timers. It's, um, some race timers have actually, uh, they like the fact that it's um, considerably, you know, how do I put this? It's considerably lighter cost-wise than the equivalent in active RFID, for instance. So some timers might think of it as a similar sort of system to active RFID in terms of it doing the same sort of sports in the same sort of way, but the cost is a lot lighter, both in their own pocket as well as uh, deployment in the field. So maybe one less staff when they go to the actual race site. So overall, most race timers that I've spoken to uh, have been very enthusiastic about it. The Where they see a little bit of a conflict, perhaps, or a threat is what we just dis- discussed about seven minutes ago, which is the so-called DIY organizer. Now, small organizers, you know, where, where there might be a conflict is small organizers who are really on the edge of whether paying or not, you know, a thousand euros plus for a service that with a small race, they don't really need to pay for. Now, we could, yes, cannibalize that business. So there are, some of them are slightly worried. They might be cannibalizing their own business at the low end. Right. You know, if I could put it that way. So that has been one of the concerns, I would say. But mitigated from the fact that once they think about it a little bit more, they realize that actually they can just simply become DIY service providers. And that's actually been one of the exciting things for some of them is that some race timers think, well, hold on a second. Can I be a DIY uh, race timer? So I've got my normal events that I go to, you know, three, four a weekend. Then I've got my quote unquote virtual events. So I would be sending Atlas equipment out to the race organizer who's too small to pay for my services anyway. And I can have one staff back at the office monitoring and supporting those events. So actually my revenues go up uh, nicely and my costs only go up a little bit. Right. Right. And and one of the things you mentioned there that I wanted to touch on as well was um, accuracy. So this this might be on people's um, minds in terms of, you know, thinking of all the huge, very robust, you know, RFID hardware they, they, they may be picturing versus a phone. And they may be wondering, you know, like, oh, yeah, that, that sounds terribly convenient and everything. But how accurate really is it compared to what I'm used to with RFID? This is always why I propose a test as well with uh, race timers. So ev- I think I've only ever had one refusal of a test, to be, to be quite honest, with the race timers I've contacted. And we have conducted tests. Now, here I'm going to have to get specific about Atlas as opposed to other companies, because I cannot simply talk about other companies on, on this particular topic. I know what one of our big competitors claims in terms of timing accuracy, and I can tell you what we have found. So we actually have found that our system in terms of timing compares very well with passive RFID. In fact, the timing is on a par with passive, the best passive RFID. That's what we have found. We have conducted multiple tests, and most of our work, to be honest with you, 
is the stuff that you will never see. You, Panos, race directors, race summit companies, most of the work that Atlas Life Tracking has done to get the system up and running is all in the trigonometry algorithms to get the best possible extraction of accuracy of timing from our equipment. Hence, one of the reasons why we insist on a minimum of two phones at the finish line, voire trois téléphones, so three phones at the finish line, uh, so two to three phones at the finish line, that helps to get the accuracy up. Um, but really, it's all about the algorithms that sit in the background on our mobile application that does a lot of the calculations. Now, we're you know in the process of looking uh, to do certain things with it, so I'm not going to get too technical about it. But essentially, we spend almost a year perfecting algorithms to get that accuracy up. And that's the real differentiating factor between, well, without trying to promote Atlas too much, it's one of our differentiating factors, is that our time, I'm very, very confident about our timing, accuracy, and I'm happy for anyone to come and try and test it, and we're happy for anyone else to, uh, to do so. Okay. Well, two things, actually. Um, in all of this, I, I, I just reminded myself that some people, maybe not many people, but some people would not be 100% clear as to what passive and active RFID are. Just to clarify, passive is the bit where basically you have a disposable tag and the antenna does all the, you know, the emitting of the radio signals and it pick, picks up the, the passive tag because the, the tag doesn't emit anything. Whereas the active, which is closer to what the, the Bluetooth tag does, is the actual tag is emitting radio waves that also the antenna can pick up. So basically, when we're talking passive and we're comparing the accuracy of Bluetooth to a passive system, we're comparing it to the kind of system that most people would be familiar with, which is the antenna at the finish line and the really simple, almost like, you know, like the little film tag that people put put at the at the back of bibs with a little bit of foam, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, indeed, we probably should have tackled this earlier, isn't it? Passive versus active RFID, because it's not obvious to everyone, even though when I think about it, it's super clear in my mind, because technically speaking, and from a physical properties perspective, they are very, very distinct. Passive RFID, as you say, has no battery involved, whereas active RFID does have a battery. So when the athlete is running with an active RFID system, he's running with a battery on him. And when the athlete is running with a passive RFID system, almost always these days it's behind a bib. So a lot of people won't even know where it is. And it's very thin, it's very light, it's very, uh, it's very cost-effective. I mean, you know, just to be clear, RFID timing is excellent, right? It does a really, really good job, uh, both passive and are active. Active is more accurate in timing than passive, typically. With the best active RFID systems, you can get very, very decimal point accurate timing, more accurate than Bluetooth timing, right? So our accuracy, to give it some numbers, is uh, in the region of 0.5 seconds accuracy. So that's where we're at, right? And we're comfortable with saying that. We're comfortable with, with promoting that. With passive RFID, it's roughly similar. So sub-second accuracy, when all the equipment's working properly and it's, a, and it's, and it's uh, you know, the, the people are using it correctly. And with active RFID, which is used sometimes, for example, for uh, cycling races where you need high accuracy indoors, for instance, or on a track, you can get down to 0.111 uh, of a second. Because, and actually, this is probably like a, like a nice um, technical aside, but I think it's important when we're talking about accuracy and you were mentioning earlier software and everything. I think quite a few people won't realize that basically what happens when you time something at the finish line, let's say, is that the tag is being picked up multiple times. And basically, you have to have software to figure out when actually that tag crosses the finish line, right? Because it's being read many times before the finish line and after the finish line. It's a very good point. I mean, the, yeah, I think for, for, for most people's understanding here, that it's really the software that's doing the timing. The hardware is a, an enabler, as it is the case in most, most things, right? But it's really the software that's analyzing uh, the multiple, hundreds, even thousands of times the transponder communicates with the reader at the finish line. Same case with Bluetooth timing. So, uh, yes, it's, it's really down to how good is your software. So when you, you know, it's the same with a race timing company. When they're evaluating uh, who they're going to buy the RFID equipment from, 
they're going to try and figure out how strong is our software reading at the finish line, both for detection rates as well as accuracy. And that's, you know, a big part of decision making. And so it should be with Bluetooth timing. You know, Bluetooth timing, same thing. So the principles are quite similar. That's a good point to wrap up the whole technical Bluetooth RFID um, comparison. One thing that uh, people may be wondering about is in terms of all of the sort of like other stuff I get with timing, like live results, you know, the ability to have like uh, like a results kiosk at the finish line so people can just, you know, print out their time, all of that stuff. I guess that's sort of like independent of the timing infrastructure itself, right? I can just add that on whatever I'm timing with, or is that not the case? Mm, not quite, I don't think. If you've got, you know, live results, right? Live results used to be a premium f- feature. So you know, maybe going back a few years, a race director would have had to pay a little bit extra to have live results. Why the difference? Well, simply one uh, sits on the desktop, runs on an app on the desktop, and the other one uh, sits in the cloud. And live results means that everyone can share those results through a web browser, for example. Today, there's still some race time equipment out there that can't do that. The race timer comes to the race. He does the, the race timing. He then has to go home, upload the results separately from his laptop, to an internet connection to be able to make the results quote unquote live. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's the minority of cases now. Um, but so it, it is still linked um, because there's redundancies in the systems. So you need a redundancy if you want to make it, you know, absolutely sure that there's no screw ups in terms of the, uh, the reading uh, as they're crossing the finish line. So for me, that's, that's all about security of data, making sure that there is absolutely no way that you could be sat there all day long and actually lose the data somehow. You know, that's that's a big differentiating factor there. What would the future of uh, Bluetooth timing look like? What should we expect from the technology like over the next two or three years? Yeah, so the Bluetooth timing, I think, is going to evolve in, uh, first of all, you're going to see it uh, in more and more sports. That's the first thing I'm convinced of. So in particular, sports are a little bit tricky to do for, uh, for people. You're going to say, so I'll give you an example, sailing. Right, so non-professional dinghy sailing, you're going to see that come in. So we're going to see Bluetooth timing spread its wings into different types of sports. So it's already in some sports, but you're going to see it spread. I anticipate that you will see Bluetooth timing come into place where today there is no RFID timing. And Mm -hmm. here I'm talking about periphery countries that maybe can't afford it or where the infrastructure is not so good. So we're going to see it in Africa. We're going to see it in Latin America. We're going to see it in parts of Asia. Um, And I think that's where you're going to see quite a bit of growth because today you've got very little infrastructure uh, from RFID equipment perspective for all those places I've mentioned for any emerging races. Uh, It's simply too expensive. It's too, uh, you've got to ship it all out there. It's cumbersome. There isn't enough of it to go out there. So you can imagine that that's where you're going to see it really grow in those sorts of areas. Then in the future, uh, it could very well be that um, you may not need a pod, right? So in the future, uh, you may already have a device which can be compatible with our software. Would that be a phone? Could be a phone. In fact, we already do it with phones. So for instance, with our the virtual live that I talked about that we have, uh, the social distancing sort of permanent course thing, um, yes, we already use phones for that. But I'm talking about even other devices. So... You know, for example, I'll just give you uh, give something at the top of my head. You know, the ring, uh, the whoop ring that people uh, mm-hmm. use uh, to track their sleep, et cetera. Why yeah. not use one of those? So if you're running with a whoop ring, we could probably, in the future, just leverage your whoop ring to get timing results. Or a watch that quite a few people have, I guess. Or any other device, yeah. So essentially, um, that's the direction I think the Bluetooth timing will go in. And it will just become a little bit, you know, the French have a word, democratisation, you know, the ability for everyone to be able to participate. That's where Bluetooth timing is going. It's going to give people the ability to do uh, something, provide a professional level of timing service that's not possible for them today because of the cost. So it's really about that. Excellent. Well, I should uh, thank you very, very much for all this. It's been extremely helpful in understanding where Bluetooth is and where it's going. 
Now, tell me, where can people, um, how can people reach out to you and Atlas in case they want to explore either the DIY option or the, you know, if there are timers, getting a system in uh, option with you guys? How, how do they reach out to you? You can go to our website, www.atlaslivetracking.com. Type that in Google, you should find us. Or you could just go www.bluetoothtiming.com, take you to the same place. So that's the best way to get hold of us. And once you've got hold of us through the website, um, we're very, very happy and very, very open. So we're very happy to, to chat on WhatsApp or over the phone. We're very open. So yeah, please get in touch anytime. And we'll be very, very happy to take it from there. Excellent. And you guys are, uh, like your service is available in, in which countries right now? So right now we're available in Europe. We're also available in Asia through Hong Kong. So principally those areas, yeah. We have tons of U.S. listeners. Is this coming to the U.S. anytime soon? Yeah, so the U.S. market is, you know, altogether a huge market all by itself. It's quite distinct from the markets that I'm very familiar with. So as I said, we're in Europe, we're in Asia. We're looking into the U.S. It's certainly a, a very interesting market. Uh, I know a couple of the players there, and there's so many very enthusiastic uh, race directors over there that, you know, we're looking into it. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Jean-Louis. That's been uh, really, really interesting. Thanks a lot for your time. Yeah, thank you very much, Benos. And thanks to the listeners for uh, tuning in, and we'll see everyone next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode on Bluetooth timing with Atlas Live Tracking founder, Jean-Louis Lafayette. You can find more resources on anything and everything related to race directing on our website, racedirectorshq.com. You can also share your questions about race timing or anything else in our Facebook group, Race Directors Hub. And we have a Facebook group dedicated just to race timing. So if you want to expand your knowledge in that area, come join our Race Timing Hub group on Facebook. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe on your favorite player for more content like this. And until our next episode, take care and keep putting on amazing races.